0: Hello, my name is Michael Albert, and I am the host of the podcast titled Revolution Z. This is episode 41 of Revolution Z. It is the eighth session devoted to conveying the dialogue and visuals of the screenplay and hoped-for movie titled Next American Revolution. So, imagine you are in a movie theater. You are viewing Next American Revolution, which you are over an hour into. The scene you see is an interracial neighborhood where Miguel Guevara walks and talks with Noam Carmichael, a bit academic looking, a full-time organizer, and a Muslim, about his joining RPS. Miguel Guevara asks, Noam, I wonder if you remember first becoming radical? Noam Carmichael replies, in 2001 I was old enough to get a sense for the change in my situation due to my religion and appearance. I was soon radicalized by trying to understand and oppose Islamophobia. Doing so made me feel one with others. When I got to college, My roommate took one look, and I could feel his fear. For weeks, we worked through that until we became good friends. I would guess that had we not dealt with our tensions, he would later have voted for Trump. I learned we had to listen to one another and work through biases. If we didn't, much less if we denigrated one another, we would become enemies. Miguel Guevara asks, Can you remember a personally important event you experienced during the rise of RPS? Noam Carmichael answers, Noam Carmichael answers, I often taught in RPS schools for organizers. There were many such schools focused on society's ills, movement building, vision of what could be, and how to attain the desired future. Sometimes on a campus, sometimes in a workplace, sometimes in an apartment complex. Sometimes the schools were for people in some industry, like the Hollywood schools that began in 2022 and propelled the whole extended project. The schools typically ran for at least a week, usually 10 days, and they included classes, discussions, and time to socialize. About two-thirds in, after we reached a level of trust and positive energy, we would have a night session to answer the question, what is responsible for your being here to learn about revolutionizing society? Some people would tell about first reading some author and the eye-opening effect it had on them. Or some would tell of a first rally or a march launching them into activism. But many other stories featured tears and trauma. The scene shifts to a hall where students and faculty mill about, then begin a session. The visual moves in time from speaker to speaker, skipping over much discussion. A female student says, I was abused as a child. I was repeatedly raped. I endured a long time. I finally ran away. Luckily, I found activism. A male student says, I saw a close friend gunned down. These are his initials tattooed on my arm. I initially hated everyone. In time, I focused my hatred on the system around me. A second female student says, I lost a parent, a friend, and a friend's parent to drugs and suicide. What caused it? Them or society? A radical social worker showed me the right answer. A second male student says, I lost my home and lived threadbare. I became addicted, but I got straight. The scene shifts back to the interracial neighborhood where the Gravera Carmichael continues while walking amidst city folk. Noam Carmichael says, Sometimes it was less extreme. I was bullied or I was a bully. I was cheated or I cheated. People no one expected to tell such stories said publicly what had earlier been private. The suffering they reported, so devastating, so widespread, and most often so hidden, cemented my radical commitments. Their stories made me more of a listener than I had been before. I learned that what went unsaid was often profoundly important. Miguel Guevara asks: How did race impact rps? Carmichael answers: The direct implication had been well known for a long time. An activist organization had to welcome and benefit from diverse racial communities. We had to elevate diverse communities to leadership and to predominant say over their own affairs. Minority communities suffered low income, little influence, and great danger. But focusing exclusively on race overlooked other matters. We had to add to race a gender, class, and authority focus, and vice versa. Guevara says, I remember a conflict in which you played a role. It was who should organize whom. Carmichael interrupts. Yes, I attended an early RPO-sponsored meeting about an anti-racist campaign. Experienced blacks and women rejected having to organize white people or men. The formulation had been repeated so forcefully, so emotively, and for so many years that it had become virtually unchallengeable. The scene shifts to an RPS planning meeting where you see RPS members sitting and talking. A black woman activist says, It burdens us to expect blacks to combat racism among white folks by educating them, or to expect women to combat sexism among men by educating them. White folks and men have to talk to other white folks and men. A white male activist says, But what if I don't feel I understand racism or sexism enough to be as convincing as someone who directly experiences the issues? The black woman activist says, Get smarter. Stop thinking I should educate you. Educate yourself, and then other whites. Young gnome Carmichael says, Wait a minute. I am an activist. I am anti-racist. I am black, and I am experienced. I get that in a wonderful world, I wouldn't have to worry about educating anyone about racism, much less spend time educating racist white folks. I also get that doing so is time-consuming and demeaning. But I don't see how my agreeing on all that implies that I should never organize whites about racism. Why does that follow? If it follows because I shouldn't do anything, that compared to being burden-free in a better world burdens me, then compared to not having racism, organizing blacks burdens me too, but I do it, not every minute, but when I think it can contribute to overcoming racism. So isn't the right question, will my educating whites help the anti-racist cause? And if that is the right question, then when I'm in a better position to organize whites than our other whites, shouldn't I do it? You see the argument continue in the meeting, and you also hear Noam Carmichael's voice over the visual. He says, I got shouted down, but I didn't fade away. I knew a great many folks agreed with what I had said, not least because they told me so after the meeting. So I kept at it. Discussion spread. It wasn't easy, but in time the old viewpoint altered. The scene returns to the interracial neighborhood where Guevara and Carmichael are walking on the streets past boarded-up shops. You see the interview continue. Noam Carmichael says, The more I thought about it, the more I felt that the main issue was did we believe we could win or were we just hammering out a stance that felt comfortable and made modest gains without seeking long-term goals. I wasn't saying that blacks or women in the parallel case should spend all their time talking with intractable white racists or male sexists, but I was saying that often blacks and women know more and can better motivate what they know about race and gender than can whites or men. Miguel Guevara asks, so the right calculus wasn't how much of a burden it was to do that, but how necessary it was doing that? Carmichael answers, yes, and the same held for white activists organizing white working and rural people instead of only urbanites and students. Guevara asks, RPS also jettisoned attacking white skin privilege, and you pursued that battle too, right? Carmichael answers, privilege implies having something you should renounce. But when folks called out white privilege, they mentioned safety from abuse, enjoying access and influence, and getting fair treatment. Talking about renouncing white privilege made poor folks think our aim was to take basic things away from them rather than to guarantee to everyone those things and much more. Guevara asks, What about communication issues? Carmichael answers. Just preceding RPS, academic leftists felt we were missing nearly incomprehensible ideas that needed to be discovered by way of nearly unreadable texts. They wrote nearly incomprehensible ideas in unreadable texts. Even if they had merit, which I admit I doubted, they were useless anyhow, Guevara asks. Maybe they just wrote to prop themselves up and make themselves seem worthy with pompous language, Carmichael answers. Perhaps. But whatever their reason, the real problem wasn't too few obscure ideas. It was that already known, clear ideas were not reaching large audiences. So RPS sought better ways to spread existing insights and vision. We involved ever more people in refining, employing, and implementing thoughts in their own words. We didn't compromise content. We clarified it. We went from activism made obscure by academia to academia renovated by activism. Corvara continues. I remember another controversy having to do with issues of solidarity and their implications for being true to one's views. The scene shifts to an RPS class, where you see students hear from young Noam Carmichael wearing an RPS emblazoned shirt, who says, Showing solidarity means acting in accord with the interests of others and supporting others in their pursuits. Enjoying autonomy means functioning without intrusion from without. Clearly, we shouldn't always support, but nor should we always ignore, others' wishes. A female black student asks, I don't want to be subject to the will of racists and sexist. I want to explore my own views, pursue my own agendas, learn from my own mistakes, and benefit from my own insights. But I get that there is a tension between desires for autonomy and efforts to attain solidarity. What's the resolution? Young Noam Carmichael answers, Over 50 years before RPS, this tension was highlighted by Bread and Roses feminists in New England, black power activists in the South, and national groups like the Black Panthers and Young Lords. Women, blacks, and Latinos were tired of dealing with male or white complaints. But while for movements to operate under their own control and largely unconnected to others was fine in theory, in practice such choices tended to sacrifice solidarity. Some said, why diminish our overall power with this autonomy fetish? Others said, why subject ourselves to endless hassle from folks who are trying to keep us down or who don't understand our situation? And both concerns were valid. The female black student says, we need autonomy, but we also need solidarity. How about having massive coalitions that contain women's organizations and anti-racist organizations together fighting global warming? Young Carmichael responds, The problem is, while coalitions don't prevent a woman's or an anti-racist organization from operating autonomously, and while they allow solidarity around whatever is the unifying issue of the coalition, their solidarity is seriously limited. A female Latin student interjects, Member organizations don't enjoy solidarity for their own full agendas, nor do they offer solidarity to others for anything beyond the coalition focus. Young Carmichael replies, exactly, and that is why RPS proposes groups and projects join a block. Each group and project retains its autonomy to pursue its own specific program as it decides, but each also pledges to support the program's other block members propose. The agenda of the block is the sum of all the agendas of all its component organizations, movements, and projects. Each part of the bloc's agenda comes from one or another partner in the bloc, but everyone adopts it all. The female black student says, I see how all members would then receive and give solidarity, and how everyone would retain their own focus, but aren't you brushing away difficulty by saying everyone would support the whole agenda? Young Carmichael replies, The women's movement has a program rooted in feminist activism. If it joins a block with others, then its prior program becomes one part of the program of the whole block. It receives support from other members. Reciprocally, as a member, it supports other members regarding their programs. Two factors make this hard, the female black student asserts, more like impossible. To join an organization, I would have to decide not only that I liked the organization, but that I liked its block, too. The female Latin student adds, Organizations would fear this would reduce their membership, and even worse, if a block includes organizations with contradictory programs, the overall block program would have to contain both aspects. That seems ludicrous. Young Carmichael replies, I too initially considered the obstacles insurmountable. But if the overall purpose of the block is winning a new society with various agreed features, then members could see the contradictory program components as possibilities that should be explored. The female Latin student says, like a good society would do with different proposals. Young Carmichael adds, exactly. When one proves better, we choose it. But as long as the choice is uncertain, we keep the contrary aspects in play. The female Latin student says, groups with a particular agenda reap the benefits of solidarity and in turn help others. And on that happy, optimistic note, I hope you will agree we are at a good spot for a break in the action before getting to our ninth Next American Revolution session of what will be 12 in all in a couple of days. I hope in the meantime you will find a moment to visit the Revolution Z Patreon page at com slash Z. There you can find out more about the project, and if you are so inclined, you can become a patron, supporting its continuation and enlargement. Meanwhile, I will get the next episode presenting Next American Revolution Ready, and also our next Revolution Z proper episode, which will have Bill Fletcher as a guest, and will continue addressing community culture vision and strategy issues. And until then, this is Michael Albert, signing off, until next time, for Revolution Z.